Emerson begins his great essay, Nature, with two basic declarative sentences. Our age is retrospective. It builds the sepulchers of the fathers. I think it's easy to read that without context and look back and say our age is always backward looking and that remains almost perennially true and I think that's something to focus on in the essay and it's profitably focused on in the essay but a very important context of that is this phrase it builds the sepulchers of the fathers in 1825 at the laying of the cornerstone of the Bunker Hill Monument, Daniel Webster says, we are among the sepulchers of our fathers. It's a biblical phrase, basically saying that we are at the burying place of the people who gave birth to us, not the mothers, of course. And uh, this, I think, is interesting that Bunker Hill is, of course, where Washington came down and took control of the army and did not lose, and therefore in a war of repulsion, not losing ultimately means winning. Years later, in 1848, they started the Washington Monument, and the Washington Monument refers to the Bunker Hill Monument. They're both tall obelisks. They're very similar looking. And the government in Washington is meant to be understood as the result of the fight at Breed's Hill or Bunker Hill. And Emerson and Daniel Webster, of course, are looking at each other, two famous orators contending for the soul of the country. Are we going to be a country that looks backward and builds and worships statues, or are we going to be a country that looks forward and generates new patriots and new ideas? And Emerson, though he contributed to the Washington Monument, uh, definitely feels like we should be a forward-looking rather than a backward-looking nation. Emerson's fairly gentle in his critique of Webster, though. I think he admires Webster, and I think that ultimately in Webster's speech, in fairness, he also is asking that we are reminded to look forward um, through the example set by Washington and this monument to the heroes of Boston. Webster's contexts are a little different, too, because he's actually speaking to many of these men who would have been in their 70s at the time, and they came to see the laying of the cornerstone of the monument, where they fought for the idea of a free, democratic republic in North America. Statues are a complicated issue, and they're an important issue right now. Melville mentions statues of Napoleon uh, and statues of Lord Nelson, and he says that though they might descry the shoals to be avoided in the future. Um, they don't communicate with the people on the ground. They don't hear the people on the ground. In other words, they may be looking backward more than they're looking forward. And that certainly is how Emerson comes down on the statue issue. I think statues are interesting. I, um, as a student of early American literature had a large sculpture of Nathaniel Hawthorne in my front yard. I lived two doors down from his birthplace. The question that people are asking now about whether the statues 
are still relevant or whether they still speak to us or whether they should even exist is not a new question. This is a question that people were asking at the time they were putting these monuments and statues up. And Emerson is skeptical. Emerson's always skeptical. That's his game, right? He thinks that the most American value, important American value, is dissent. That you have to say no. Melville also says only the man who says no is free. These people thought that a democracy required in some ways some kind of iconoclasm. Had we grown up under the shadow of a statue of King George, we may have been less inclined to list the grievances that he committed against us in the Declaration of Independence. I guess when we're thinking about this conversation, it's really coming down mostly to Confederate statues. There are some other statues coming down, some other conversation about other statues, and there's a conversation among academics and intellectuals about whether we should remove statues or whether we should provide some new interpretation um, and contextualize those things because, again, context is everything. And I think that when we think about these Confederate statues, context is very, very important. Most of them were constructed by... The way for them was paved by, in various ways, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, which are listed as a clan-adjacent group, despite having some quote-unquote prominent members over the years. And uh, to think about it in another way, they are the propaganda arm of the Ku Klux Klan. They very successfully lobbied governments, um, consulted experts and intellectuals, um, and raised funds to construct most of these projects in the period of about the 1920s through the 1940s and 50s. The post-war period was interested in building statues. Some of them were erected before that, but many of them were erected later. Um, and if we want to think about the mother of all of these. There's no single monument that better illustrates the academic, political, cultural, and social nexus that erected these monuments than Stone Mountain in Georgia. If you look up Stone Mountain, you might come to find Stone Mountain Park. It's kind of like a Disneyland. They have like, you know, camping, and they have, uh, you know, uh, lodging and lakes and swimming and attractions and you'll see a lot of pictures of happy interracial couples <laughs> visiting the park and you really have to actually kind of look around to get past the laser shows and the golf and the dining and the nature and if you search hard enough though you'll will see the main feature of the park, which is a Mount Rushmore for racists. And it's a picture or a, a bas relief um, carving of Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Stonewall Jackson. Some of the other um, planned minor panels on the side were to include Nathan Bedford Forrest, the founder of the first Ku Klux Klan. That panel, however, was never completed. The history of Stone Mountain and why it's become the site of that uh, carving is really interesting. As most people know, in 1915, D.W. Griffith, 
uh, produced, released his epic film, The Birth of a Nation. The Birth of the Nation was built out of two Thomas Dixon novels. One was called The Klansman, and the other was called The Leopard's Spots. And uh, it showed the birth of the nation, and the nation was, of course, the invisible empire of the Ku Klux Klan. The um, film was phenomenally controversial at the time, in 1915, and it was also phenomenally well-received and screened at the White House, for instance. And following the film that showed all of these um, epic outdoor long shots of people on horses and people rushing around in their uniforms. The Klan uniforms, by the way, had no historical precedent. Griffith had been to Spain and he had seen the Easter robes that, that the people would wear when they carried their altars out of their churches and marched in the and paraded in the streets with them at Easter, and he thought that that looked powerful and interesting and scary or whatever, and so he emulated those costumes. It's kind of weird when people go to Spain and they see those costumes. They see people, you know, coming out of churches in what they associate with clan robes. is a little bit uh, frightening, frankly. But, um, but anyway, so Griffith, through art, through a cultural, art, cultural artifact created the second Ku Klux Klan. The first Ku Klux Klan, of course, had been just sort of absorbed into the political structure of the South following Reconstruction, and there wasn't sort of a need for one. In 1915, when William Simons, um, inspired by Birth of a Nation, wanted to recreate the Klan, he met with a man named Samuel Venable, who was also a, a fan of the film and a interested in recreating the clan and they met at Stone Mountain uh, and then they maintained their sort of ritual cross burnings and and the other trappings of a terrorist organization that lasted in that spot until the 1960s. They actually stopped their cross burnings uh, in uh, 1965 in order to rebrand and open their park as their family fun center. Uh, they did it not incidentally on April the 15th, 1965, to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln. In 1925, a woman named Helen Payne, she was the president of the United Daughters of the Confederacy for Georgia, got together with various Klan members and set up a meeting with um, Sam Venable in order to get him to donate the the land for the monument and they started construction on it in uh, 1925. It was a problem though because the Klan was sort of a little bit falling out of favor. At least it was stopping its rampant spread because uh, D.C. Stephenson, he was the grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan at the time, was convicted of the rape and murder of Madge um, Ober Oberholzer um, in 1925. He kidnapped her and, and tortured her and killed her, and the Klan had been spreading really broadly across the country into all states. The state with the highest Klan membership was Indiana. The second highest was Oregon, or as other people call it, Oregon. And uh, the, the spread of the Klan sort of slowed at that point when it seemed that Stephenson's hypocrisies made the Klan not what it was 
uh, not, not what it seemed to be to some other people, I guess. So anyway, the the project stalled for a while. It, they'd begun construction on it, but it stalled for a while. And then uh, in response to the civil rights movement, and particularly Brown versus Board, um, they, the United Daughters of the Confederacy and some other interested parties, um, with help from the segregationist governor, Marvin Griffin at the time, were able to sort of purchase Stone Mountain by the state and reboot it, and they hired a series of other sculptors to complete it. The carving wasn't completed until 1972. So between 1965, when the park opened in 1972, people could watch them blasting and changing the monument and, and working on it and keeping it under construction. If you remember what was happening in 1972, George Wallace had just uh, recently won re-election uh, for the governor of Alabama, and he returned to national politics by seeking the Democratic nomination for the presidency for the third time, I believe, at that point. Um, only to meet in the 1976 primary as a rising star in the Democratic Party from Georgia, um, future President Jimmy Carter. And the Wallace-Carter fight was a fight for the soul of the Democratic Party. Would we revert back to the Dixiecrat models of Strom Thurmond from the 40s, or would we move ahead with the Bobby Kennedy model outlined in the 60s? There was always some tension between these parts of the Democratic Party. And when Carter won decidedly and Wallace was um, sort of relegated to obscurity in some ways, uh, one, he had a change of heart about uh, his, his stance on race, um, and two, Carter um, effectively reformed the Democratic Party. But make no mistake about it, Stone Mountain was involved in all of these significant movements and was considered a symbol of it. The reconstruction of the Klan the in the teens, the rise of the Klan in the 20s, the reemergence of the Klan during the Civil Rights era, and the reformation of the Democratic Party in the 60s through the 70s. So this is not some monument that was built in 1865 and has been there ever since, and, and we've just lived with it. It's a monument that was completed in 1972. Of course, there's been some talk lately about removing monuments for people who weren't involved in the Confederacy. And I think the news tends to focus on that. I think that I think that the issue there is, you know, there's a slippery slope, and what's next? We're going to take down the White House itself. But I think that most people who are opposed to monuments and favor the removal of them want the Confederate monuments uh, uh, removed. I read an article recently by the Harvard professor of legal history. Um, Annette Gordon-Reed, a really uh, important figure in American legal history, who's, who mentioned there's a profound difference between a monument to someone who wanted to build the republic and someone who wanted to tear it down, and I think that's a pretty basic distinction. Keep in mind that the South never really lost things culturally, and in fact, in many ways, if you think of Southern music or Southern actors or Southern writers, it really 
truly prevailed culturally. So to say that their culture was under attack without saying that the main factor in that was slavery is really, really a revision of our history. I guess it's just a general reluctance by the South to acknowledge that uh, some of their great cultural heroes like Louis Armstrong or Brittany Howard or people of African descent. To think about this in terms of Emerson, I guess what's interesting to me in that essay, in the, in the uh, introduction to nature, Emerson talks about, he, he mentions uh, the 37th chapter of Ezekiel where Ezekiel goes to the Valley of Dry Bones and God gives him the prophecy and tells him to speak to the bones and reanimate that and move forward. And I think that that's what Emerson's interested in. He's interested in the spirit of the founding fathers, but not the founding fathers. He would like to see us have what Lincoln will call a few years later, a new birth of freedom, where we can understand and look to the past, but maybe more importantly, we can shape the future in a way that is better than the past. And I think that's what the removal of statues is about for people, that you need to clear the path so that you can invent the future. I really think of these statues in terms of my experience of living under the shadow of them for several or many years. Hawthorne really isn't my guy or anything. I guess that would have been more his friend Melville. And at that time, I was also getting interested in a lot of the writers of African descent who um, were also sailors. And that was kind of the direction a lot of my work took at that time. But it was cool to uh, live under the shadow of that statue and to see that. It was also cool the way that Hawthorne in, say, the Customs House episode of um, The Scarlet Letter or the House of Seven Gables layered his books with all these sort of local landmarks and artifacts and could wander around the neighborhood and see those things. I would run into people I knew, you know, scholars of American literature, colleagues, friends, doing the Hawthorne tour. And of course there were, you know, countless international tourists who would come around to see the see the statues and the landmarks, statues all over Boston. And I, it was kind of inspiring, frankly. I, I didn't... It was interesting. I think ultimately the thing that was different or the thing that was meaningful was that I was engaged in an enterprise of studying American literature and I lived in a place that showed me that it valued that enterprise and it supported my efforts in that direction and that was nice. There's some movement underway to rename the Edmund Pettus Bridge after John Lewis. The bridge was named uh, after Edmund Pettus in 1940, and of course, 25 years later on March 7th, 1965, it's where John Lewis and his fellow peaceful protesters were violently attacked um, while attempting to advocate for voting rights for blacks, where they represented only 1% of voters in Selma at the time and they were brutally beaten and John Lewis took one of one of many brutal beatings that he absorbed in his lifelong commitment to nonviolence and peaceful protest and what he called good trouble so we want to rename the bridge after him
And I think that sounds like a fantastic idea. I think it would have been a good idea to do it on March 8th, 1965, but I still think it's a good idea. You think about that, you know, if I was a person of color living in Selma and I had to drive over that bridge every day and I saw that name Edmund Pettus. You know, Edmund Pettus was the the uh, grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. If I think about what a significant difference that would mean in my life between seeing Edmund Pettus, Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, every day when I left my house, not just for people of color, but obviously it's a particularly um, chilling thing for them. I don't think I'd feel the same way about it as I felt about seeing a Hawthorne statue every day when I left my house. I tell you, I don't know who you'd have to be, though, to not feel good about seeing John Lewis's name on that bridge. Anyway, John Lewis, U.S. Representative from the great state of Georgia, has left us. Thanks for 80 years of good trouble. <laughs>